Singing, blessing, and 
Oh. 
Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans and turn to chapter 9? Romans chapter 9. Good to see each one of you. Good to look out on a full house. And know that you are here not to see me or any other person. That we have come here to see the Lord. And so let's look to Him and humble ourselves before Him as we look to His Word. Father, You are... An amazing God, we worship a blessed Trinity. It humbles us to know that before time began, you knew us, you formed us, you wrote our names in your book. Not for anything that you saw in us that would be good, but purely because of your grace in Christ. Lord, we look upon that with such gratitude, and we are thankful. Holy Spirit, I ask that as we look into this word that you have breathed, that you would anoint it in a way that it would be clear to us and that it would live within us and that it would change us. That, Holy Spirit, you would do the work in lives that are here today that only you can do. We look to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been going through the book of Romans. I've greatly enjoyed this study. Last week we began this new section of the book. We are beginning in chapter 9. Chapter 9, 10, and 11 kind of form a complete whole. And in this section of three chapters, there are many themes. We talked about these themes last week in an overview. There's so much in these chapters. The difficult thing for me as we go through these chapters is going to be to keep moving and not bog down. So you're going to have to talk to me at times and tell me, Tim, you've got to speed it up. You're driving us crazy on this. There's so much here. It's deep stuff. It's deep water. Um... Jacob Spiner, who was a German pietist hundreds of years ago, said, Scripture is both water that a lamb can wade in and that an elephant can drown in. And that is true. This is deep water. We talk about the sovereignty of God here. We talk about election. Not the election and whether or not the election got robbed. Okay? That's not what we're talking about today. Election. A doctrine in the scripture. We're talking about Israel. Israel's in the news all the time, isn't it? What is the nation of Israel? Who are they? Why are they special to God? Why do we call them his chosen people? What does all this mean? So when we go through Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, it's really like a study of the entire Bible in three chapters. There's so much here. Today, again, is somewhat introductory. We're going to read the first 13 verses of the chapter that we are in. I'm going to explain the structure of the chapter, and then we're going to make some applications. And then we'll call it quits. 
and will live to preach another Sunday. So let's look at it. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. This next verse reminds me of what Keith read to us this morning when Moses is on Mount Sinai. And God is ready to wipe his people from the planet. And Moses steps in the gap. Says, don't do it. They are your chosen people. All the nations will say, you were not able to bring them in. Don't do it. He intercedes. Here, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul was of all men most joyful, fun to be around, and I'm sure in many ways a happy-go-lucky guy. I can imagine that in any meeting of people, when Paul was in the room, you could hear Paul's laugh above everybody else. People loved Paul. But deep within the part, the heart of the Apostle Paul was a grief. If you've ever lost someone that is very dear to you, you know what grief is. It's with you everywhere you go. And every one moment you wake. C.S. Lewis said after losing his wife Joy that the only respite he had was when he slept. And that wasn't always good because he had dreams. And what Paul is describing here is this kind of feeling of a grief that you've experienced when you've lost a loved one. You know that feeling. In every happy moment, in every trip to the grocery store, in every turn down a side street, there is settled deep in your heart sadness. And Paul is here describing within his heart a deep, settled sadness over the lost condition of his kinsmen. He goes on and he says this. I could wish that I myself were cursed. That I was cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. He then gives an eightfold description of the blessings that they received as Israelites. To them belongs adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law. The worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah. And notice his statement about the deity of Christ. The Messiah, who is God over all. The blessed one forever. Amen. So what happened to Israel? He then says, it is not as though the word of God had failed. For not all who have descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are children of Abraham, because they are, not, excuse me, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. They are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this next time, this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah has conceived children by one man, our forefather, notice verse 11. Though these children were not yet born, 
though these children had not yet done anything good or bad. In order that God's purpose, and this is the word we're going to talk about in a minute, of election might continue, not because of works, but because of the one who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, and this is a quote from the book of Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Mysteries. Notice the structure of the chapter. There are five paragraphs in chapter 9. The first paragraph, Paul is just talking about this concept, I could wish. Paul is saying in that paragraph, I could wish that I were accursed so my kinsmen could be saved. He then talks about Israel and who they are and the blessings they received. And we'll go deeper into that. He then says in the next paragraph, it is not though as though the word of God failed. That wasn't the problem. The word didn't fail. We'll see in the book of Isaiah in chapter 55, the word of God never returns to him empty. It accomplishes the purpose that he sends it forth for. Always. Always. So he says the word didn't fail. That's not why Israel rejected him. And then he talks about election. Then we will see later in this chapter, the Apostle Paul is going to foresee your objection. Because you got it in your mind right now. Just like I do. What is our objection when we ever hear that God chose some, but not all. That God chose Jacob, and not Esau. That God chose Isaac, and not Ishmael. What is our objection? God is not just. And Paul is going to go right to the heart of that. In paragraph 3, he's going to actually state it that way. He is going to say, is there injustice with God? Is God unjust? The next objection that we raised, or we, you raised and I raised in my mind, when I hear this is, well, if God chose, then why would God hold me responsible? Can God hold me responsible? How does human responsibility fit with divine election and sovereignty? That's question four. Paragraph 5, at the end, he draws a conclusion. That's where we're marching over the next couple weeks. Today, let's just talk about the theme of the chapter. The theme of the chapter is what we saw, I want you to look at it, in verse 11. Though they were not yet born... Let's not say they. Let's say me. Though I was not yet born, I had not done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of the one who calls. The theme of this chapter is unconditional election. Notice the word unconditional. That means God's choice had no conditions on it. 
He chose because he chose. Is God unjust? Okay, what is the doctrine of election? Let's talk about it for a minute this morning. The doctrine of election is not something we make laws about in the United States of America. We're not talking about that kind of election. We're talking about a theological term. We're talking about a doctrinal term that appears in the scripture, but the word just simply means to choose. When we think of an election, when we think of a choice, right? You have candidates, and we make a choice. You cast a ballot. Hopefully, it got counted. You know, okay? I just had to throw that in. The doctrine of election, it just means to choose. Now, here's the truth, my friend. We could establish this all through Scripture. We don't elect God. God elects us. No man puts God on the throne. No man makes God God. God is God. We do not elect God. He reigns. He rules. And he is sovereign. And it is he who chooses men. This is all through scripture. Let me just show you one. Go with me to John chapter 15. Jesus is talking to his apostles. Jesus is preparing to die. This is his last discourse. It's his last conversation with his guys before he dies. And he reminds them of something. He does it in John 15. He says in verse 16, You didn't choose me. Not a one of the twelve did. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you. I appointed you that you should go and you should bear fruit. And I appointed that the fruit that you bear should remain. And whatever you ask in my Father's name, he will give it to you. And these things I command you. You love one another. Why does he say that? Because you're all a bunch of bums that didn't deserve to get chosen and you got chose. So love one another. Because I chose you. So who are you to not love someone else that the Lord chose? You didn't choose me, I chose you. Matthew is sitting at a desk and people are coming to him and they are paying their taxes and they're not happy about it any more than you are when you've got to fill out the dumb IRS forms. Right? Oh, Matthew, I've got to give you my money and Jesus walks to him and he says, come follow me. And that's all Matthew needed to hear. And in a similar way, Jesus walks to the desk where you sit. And he says to you, come follow me. The doctrine of election, let's think about some things in the definition. It is a decree of God before all creation. This is all through scripture. I'll show you some other verses in a minute. It is a decree. It is not a wish of God. It's not a sure, I hope I can save that individual. That Tim Moyer, he's going to be a bad sinner. I hope I can get a hold of him. It is a decree. 
And it says in the book of Revelation, when was my name written in the Lamb's book of life? Before the foundation of the world. It's a decree of God before all creation in which he chooses freely some to be saved. And this part is important. Not in Buddha. Not through Islam. Not through Eastern religion or New Age thought. In who? Christ. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's why Paul will say in Romans chapter 10, how can they believe unless they hear? Hear what? The name of Jesus. And this choice is not for any foreseen merit. It's not like he looks down in the eternity and says, Jack's going to be such a good guy, I'll save him. Sorry, Jack, you're on the front row, bad place to be. <laughs> you're a big guy, you can take it. That's not, God, right? God doesn't look down time and say, since Jack's going to be a good guy, since Jack's going to have a lot of faith, since Matt is going to go to Bible college, and he was raised in a Christian home, since this, 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 he's got all these points in his favor, I think he's a good one, I'll use him, I'll choose him. No, it's not that. It is not for any foreseen merit. That is going to be established in these verses. It is only because of his grace and accordance with his sovereign plan. Let's just illustrate something real quick and then we'll move along. This is maybe not a good illustration, but I'm going to, I'm going to pose it anyway and try it. Because right away people are saying, how, 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 how can I worship a God that doesn't choose everybody? How can I worship a God who only loves some? It just doesn't seem just. Let's think of it this way for just a minute. For some reason it's in your heart to adopt someone. And you're going to go to the lands of Russia. You go to an orphanage, You've seen those pictures, haven't you? And there are tons of kids. They're dirty and they're ill-fed. They're in need. And you look out there and you choose too. And you bring them home. And they become your children. And you go to church, and someone walks up to you and says, you're a bad person, because you only chose two. Why didn't you choose everybody in that orphanage? Maybe it's a lame illustration, but I think it hits a point. When someone has it in their heart to show love and grace in showing mercy, how is it bad when they only show that to some who are undeserving when all are undeserving? Okay. Let's look at three biblical applications, and we're going to close. We're not going to try to confound the text today. What are three biblical applications of the doctrine of election? Because you're all sitting there saying, this is pie-in-the-sky theology. What does this have to do with my real life? I'll tell you what it has to do with real life. Here's what it has to do with real life. Number one. Oh, they're all on this slide, so you've got to get them all at once, and then we'll go through them. 
It is a comfort to the believer. Number two, it is a reason for worship. And number three, it is a strong encouragement to evangelism. Let's hit them all real quick. One, it is a comfort to the believer. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy chapter 1, Paul says this in verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel. And when you suffer for the gospel, don't do it in your own power. What is he saying? Share in suffering for the gospel and suffer by the power of God. Rely on His power. And this God saved us. He called us to a holy calling. This calling was not because of our works. This calling was because of His own purpose and grace. She gave us in Christ, notice this, before time began. That, that thought right there is a comfort, my friend, when you suffer. When you go through hard times, when you go through difficulty, when Satan slams your sin in your face, and says, you don't deserve to be saved, you're a bum. When you fail in regard to faith, like Peter did, and he denied the Lord, when real life happens to you, and you get to the bottom of the barrel, and you see how there is nothing in you to sustain your faith? And he drives home to you this point. I knew you, and I called you before you were even born. That is comfort. Secondly, it is a reason for worship. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this concept of election comes up in this chapter more than any other place in a short series of verses. In verse 26 of chapter 1, he says, consider your election, brothers. Brothers is plural, so he's talking to us all. He's saying to us, okay, church, let's consider your calling. Look around you. Who's here? Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were from noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being would boast in the presence of God. And it is because of him. Notice that. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. And he became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Does God want us to boast? He does. He wants us to be a boastful people. But he doesn't want us to boast in ourselves. He wants us to boast in God. And this doctrine of election, more than any other doctrine I think in Scripture, causes us 
to fall on our face before a mighty God, a sovereign God, and to say, you chose me? All praise to you. So the one who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. Third one is a strong encouragement to evangelism. You say, how is this stuff, election, cause anybody to witness? Look at what Paul did with it. Go with me one more time to 2 Timothy. I should have told you to keep your finger there, and then we're going to close. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, or chapter 2, notice what Paul says. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says this. He says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Why? So that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. What is he saying there? This doctrine of election is not a hindrance to evangelism. It is a strong incentive. You know why? Because it secures our results. God will save his people. Our job is to be a lot like a waiter. What's a waiter's job? You go to a restaurant to get the food to you without messing it up. That's all his job is. All our job is to get the food to people and not mess it up. You don't have to be a fuller brush salesman for Jesus. You don't got to beg people. You don't got to, like, twist their arm. You don't have to try to, like, you know, I'll give you ten incentives. If you believe in Jesus, I'll buy you a new Lexus. All you got to do is tell people who Jesus is, what he has done. And you don't even got to do a good job at it. I'm not saying to do a bad job at it, but you won't be perfect at it. Sometimes you witness to people and you screw it up. Have you ever done that one? I remember on an airplane once witnessing to this lady, and I screwed it up so royally. I mean, I just could not. I mean, it just was a screw-up. And I got to the end of it, and I said, are you interested in this? She says, well, what, do, what do I need to do? Where do I sign up? And I came away with it. Well, it was definitely God, because that was not me. Because I just totally screwed the thing up. But she wanted Jesus. And all we got to do is point people to Jesus, tell them what Jesus has done in our life, and show them the word, and share with them the gospel, and let Jesus and the Holy Spirit do the rest. And get out of the way. I'll never forget. And I'll close with this little story. I know this man wouldn't mind me telling the story. He's no longer here. He's moved away. Years ago, he was the CEO of the hospital here. He started coming to church. I've seen him come two or three times. He was not from a Christian background. He was from an LDS background. He was carrying his LDS Bible, and I wondered what he was doing. Why is he coming? Well, I was doing a Bible study at the care center, and so when I was done the care center Bible study, I decided I'm going to go see him. I went down the hall, and I went to his secretary, and I said, I'd like to talk to Steve for a minute. Can I go in? And she called him on the phone, and he said, I could hear him yell, yeah, tell Tim to come on in. So I came in the door, and as I came in the door, he said, shut the door behind you. And I walked in and walked up to his desk. He looked at me, and he said this, Tim, I've become a Christian. What do I do now? Not one person in this church had witnessed to him. Not one person in this valley had witnessed to him. You know what happened to him? He started reading his Bible. And then he started searching online. And all of a sudden he met Jesus. And then he came here. And you know what that taught me? We need to be faithful. We need to share. But you know what? God is capable.
of saving people. If God could save me, if God could save you, he can save anyone. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we humble ourselves before you. I remember as a little kid, Father, going to school and boasting to other kids about who my dad was because I loved my earthly father. Father, put in our hearts such a love for you that we're not obnoxious and rude. We just, we just talk about you and we boast about you because you are so great and you are so powerful and you've done so much in our lives that there's no way that we can't but worship you and tell others. And Father, I believe that what was said by our Savior to Paul in the city of Corinth in a vision is true of this valley. When you said to Paul, I have many people in this place. Lord, I believe there are many people in this valley that you want to save, that you will save, so that in the ages to come, you will be glorified. Use us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song together?